All right. Hey, Simple Passive Cashflow listeners. Today we got James Eng, National Underwriter with Old Capital. How's it going, James? Good. Thanks for having me, Lane. Yeah, so James and I kind of met a few years back um, when I was kind of starting in apartment investing. And he's, uh, how many loans have you originated since then, just in the past few years? Yeah, since uh, 2015, I've done about 100 loans. So 100 loans, about 500 million. Um, mostly, you know, 95% of that's been multifamily. Um, most of it is here in the Texas area and I'm actually in Dallas, Fort Worth. So most of them are, are here local. Yeah. So we're going to try and demystify this whole, um, commercial lending realm. Cause I think a lot of folks, they, they, they get the residential loans, the Fannie Mae's, the Freddie Mac's, um, you know, the whole, you get 10 golden ticket thing. Um, you guys can go back in the archives and look at that or a couple podcasts, I think at uh, Chili Ridge and Graham Parnum. But, um, you know, James is probably one of the best educators at this. He really has got a good grasp on um, the commercial lending realm. And um, I guess the first question here, James, is, you know, this is an overview on the non-recourse and Fannie and Freddie loan, the agency loans for apartment investing. Yeah, so for apartments, I mean, I actually came from a commercial real estate background. So I spent 10 years at G Capital and I only did sort of bridge loans and CMBS. And those, those work for all commercial property types. Um, but then when I moved to Old Capital in 2015, one of the things that I was actually surprised by was how good agency financing was. And so there's really two main um, agencies, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, that do apartment loans. And these are non-recourse. They can go up to 30 years. Um, fixed, but most people are doing like five, seven, or 10 years fixed, non-recourse. Uh, majority of them have anywhere from one to three years interest only, and then it goes 30-year amortization. And so those loans actually can go from as low as a million dollars. And so most people can qualify for these loans, especially like a Freddie Mac small balance loan. You can qualify for that on your very first um, property. And so if you find a stabilized property, in a you know a, a larger metro or even some of the smaller metros, you can get seventy five to eighty percent leverage on uh, your first transaction. Yeah, so me and my partner, when we were kind of first doing this, we were uh, kind of looking at smaller stuff. But then you get into that—that's all recourse debt. Um, would you mind explaining what the difference between recourse and non-recourse debt, and why yeah. I'm always kind of talking about it on the podcast? And but just we don't leave any behind here. Right. So on a, on a recourse loan, that really means, let's say I give you a loan for $4 million, you raise a million dollars in equity, you go buy a $5 million property. And for whatever reason, what, you know, the occupancy dips, um, that, that market gets hit and all of a sudden the property is worth $3 million. And at the end of your loan term, it's worth 3 million, you still owe four. And if the bank comes and forecloses on you, then you are personally responsible for that million dollar deficit between the loan and the value that they foreclose upon and sell that property for. Whereas on non-recourse, so Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, you would not be responsible for that million dollar difference. And so for a lot of people that, uh, you know, that recourse versus non-recourse is a huge uh, differentiator. And so that's why people are looking into multifamily because they can get non-recourse in that one to $5 million space. And a lot of people, are in that most of my loans are are in that one to ten million dollar range, and so that gives people um, the best loan. You're essentially getting like the best loan even at your lower um, unit count. So a lot of a lot of deals in that fifty to hundred units that are here in Texas. I mean that's you know that's seventy five to hundred units. Right, and, and some of the other uh, ways you qualify for that non recourse debt is like you said, a million dollar loan size and more. And then uh, what were some of the other big ones? I know occupancy was. Yeah, so you, you need a stabilized property. Um, so 90% occupied for the last 90 days, over a million dollars in loan amount. And then also you really want third-party property management, especially if it's your first deal. So third-party property managers, someone that owns or manages, sorry, manages, you know, a thousand units or 2,000 units in your submarket helps uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac get comfortable versus you. It's your first time. And you say, well, I'm going to buy 100 units and I'm going to self-manage all 100 units. And that, that becomes a, a little bit of a challenge. 
Yeah, and and that's something if you're kind of screwing around at home, making、um, just looking at LoopNet or whatever, that, that's one of the big barriers to entry here. If you don't have experience or haven't done a Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac big commercial loan deal yourself, it's just not going to happen. And you, you right, so yeah, you so you need you need to have someone partner with you a lot of times on Fannie Mae. On your first deal, just to get sort of that Fannie Mae punch card done.、Um, whereas Freddie Mac, they're a little bit more flexible in their small balance program, so that that'll be like one to six million dollars in loan loan amount, and you can you can do that on your own. But、uh, the third party property manager is where they're going to lean on a lot. So you also mentioned like the stabilized loan, ninety percent and above.、Um, it, are are they still doing like the tiers of different markets nowadays? Yeah, so they're they're gonna always do so like Freddie Mac. They they call them like top markets and standard markets. And、uh, what they do is they determine how much leverage they're willing to give, and then also how aggressive they want to be on pricing. So they, you know, in some of your top coastal markets, you might only have to do like a one twenty debt service coverage、uh, compared to a one twenty five. Let's say here,、um, let's say in. In San Antonio or something like that, smaller market, and、uh, so in Dallas County, for example, you can do a 120 debt service and you get better pricing. But then if you go to let's say two or three hours outside of Dallas, then you're going to be at maybe 75% leverage and a 135 debt service. And so what that really comes down to is it's limiting your leverage. And they're you know in those markets they just want to be a little bit more、um, careful, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and make sure that. You don't you don't get too far out over your skis on leverage、um, in those smaller markets. Yeah, and for those of you who are kind of negotiating smaller deals or deals yourself, that was one negotiating tip I use all the time.、Um, you know, when these these brokers or these sellers are trying to sell you properties that just doesn't make any sense, it's like, dude, I can't qualify for a loan. I guess I, unless I get like one point two five or one point two zero debt service coverage ratio. Yeah, so that yeah, I mean, so what happens is a lot of times, especially、um, in today's market, is the broker still wants a high price on their deal, and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are going to stick to that 125 debt service or higher. And so, what a lot of investors, in order to win the deal, they're having either to bring more equity, so they might have like a 1031 exchange, and they might put you know 35% down on a deal to win it, or they might get a bridge loan. And so these bridge loans are becoming more and more prevalent on deals, and that's where they're willing to lend up to eighty percent, and it might be at like a one zero debt service coverage. And so in in today's market, that's becoming more and more prevalent in order to win deals. Now, one one more thing I'm seeing a lot as a limited partner on deals is like the interest only. Right, and you mentioned most times it's like one to three years.、Um, right, I've even heard of like up to seven. So it's it's really hard.、Uh, like when you look at a loan, you have to look at all the components of it. And so if you just look at interest only, you can get you know a ten year loan with ten years interest only, but your your leverage is going to be sixty five. And so the way Fannie Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac look at it is they look at at the end of your loan term, can you actually refinance this loan at seventy five percent at a higher interest rate than what we're currently giving you? And so, depending on where you start on the leverage curve, that's going to determine how aggressive they're going to be on interest only. Yeah, because I think most limit partners will just say, just kind of look for the interest only, saying, "Whoa, that's a that's a smoking loan," but it's not always the case, right?、Is、right. You have to, yeah, you have to look at the leverage that you're getting. So they might have to be raising more equity on that deal to get the interest only. Um, so, and I mean, I mean, this as an LP, you want to look at all right, yeah, how much. How much is my cash on cash year to year? But then, you know, on the residual, when this deal sells, how much do I, you know, still owe on the loan? Yeah. So, so you also mentioned like the bridge loans.、Um, that's usually mostly for guys doing like unstabilized deals, like your traditional guys who go in with like a fifty percent occupied or thirty percent or even seventy percent occupied property, get a bridge loan.、Um, of course, there's recourse debts.、So、a little bit of danger there. Um, so yeah, so on I would say loans under five million dollars on a bridge are typically recourse. So that's you know your typical bank, like you could go down the street here in Dallas and go to one of these banks, and they'll, they'll give you a recourse bank loan、um, for a commercial property 
but if you want a non-recourse bridge loans, those are a little bit more complicated. Those are going to be five million and up. And what's happening is uh, because of the way pricing is in some of these markets, especially here in Texas, when you when you go to buy, let's say um, a broker is asking ten million dollars on a deal, and but the Fannie Mae loan only sizes to let's say six million dollars, so you're only getting the sixty. 60% loan to value. Um, and some, some buyers want 75 or 80% leverage. And so the only way that you can get that is with a bridge lender and they're willing to go on a lower debt service coverage. So they might come back and say, all right, we can give you seven and a half million dollars. So your choice as a journal partner is, okay, do I take the bridge loan at 7.5 million or do I take the Fannie Mae loan at $6 million? is there, how do the numbers work either way? I mean, is what's, what's what are most people doing these days? So most people are taking the bridge loan and the reason is they're, they're they raise, so they're raising less equity, right? So they only have to raise two and a half million dollars versus 4 million on that particular deal. And so that increases their return. But with that increase in return, there is more risk, right? Because bridge loans typically are three to five years and then there's going to come a maturity. And so let's say it's 2019 now, in 2022, you have a maturity. And if there was a downturn in the next three years, it might become more difficult for you to refinance that loan. Let's say your rents didn't pencil out exactly how you thought they were going to pencil out. Now, all of a sudden, your, your equity is more at risk, right? Because if uh, you know, they, they actually go in and can't refinance after three years, then that bridge lender could come in and take that property. Yeah. So, so one of the things I kind of look at a lot as when I'm kind of vetting deals is the, the term on the loan. Right. Um, what, what are the kind of ranges on there nowadays? So bridge loans are the shortest. So those are going to be three to five years. And then Fannie Mae, you can do a five, seven, 10, 12, 15 year loan. And I mean, the, the opposite risk occurs on Fannie and Freddie. So when you go and get a 10 or 12 year loan, what happens is if you sell after, let's say, three years or four years, you have a prepayment penalty. And so that prepayment penalty can range. So some of the bigger ones are things like defeasance and yield maintenance. And then the, the less or the, the smaller one is step down prepayment. So step down prepayment on Freddie Mac small balance is like a 5544. So it's a percentage of the loan. And so that, that is a lot uh, better but you typically are, are paying a higher interest rate to get that step-down prepayment. Yeah, so maybe I'll kind of go over this because um, I think that's a new concept for people. Um, yeah. What they're saying is when you, you have this loan, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, they want you to hold on to this long, uh, loan a long time. That's how right. they kind of make their money. But when you pay it off or you, know, you reposition the deal, say in five years and you sell, they're going to pay you this pretty hefty fine, right? Like a few percent points normally. No, so it's a lot higher. So let's just go back to that example of um, the $10 million deal. Let's say you get a loan for $6 million. After three or four years, you, the, so what happens when you do a Fannie Mae loan is they actually sell that loan to an investor. And so let's say you got a 10 year loan on that property. Then that investor is expecting to get a 5% um, you know, rate of return for the next 10 years. And you come back in year five and say, actually, you know, I'm going to give you all the money back. Um, and you know, that guy has to go and reinvest the money. And so really, it really determines, you know, what, what's the interest rate at that time. And that, that yield maintenance penalty can be, you know, up to like 10%, maybe even 15% of the loan amount on a prepayment penalty. So, especially when you've only paid the loan for three or four years and you still have seven or eight years left on the loan. So it, it, can, it is dramatically higher than a uh, step-down prepayment. Yeah, so I think, I think the thing that you see common, and correct me if I'm wrong here, James, is like a seven to 10-year loan term. That's correct. Not, not that 10, anything 10 to 15 is you don't see too much these days, maybe a year or two ago. Um, but then on the, they're doing the step-down prepayment penalty. On, on Freddie Mac, you can do the step-down prepayment. So that's loans anywhere from one to six million. Uh, but if you're doing like a larger deal, 
So a lot of these syndications have, you know, they're buying 20, $30 million properties. And so Freddie Mac small balance is not available. And so they're doing Fannie Mae, Fannie Mae loans. Hold on one second. That was my light. Um, the, if you, yeah, so on the Fannie Mae loans, it's going to be, it's going to be yield maintenance on, on most of these deals. And so one thing you just have to take a look at is, and you know, when you go to sell the deal, you can either do an assumption. So you can offer the deal with an assumption or you can, um, you know, just prepay it or pay it, pay off the loan and take the penalty. Yeah. And as a, from a general partner's perspective, when you're trying to underwrite your deal in the beginning, it's really hard to underwrite that prepayment penalty in there. You know, when you're trying to pencil out that hundred percent return or whatever you're going for in five years or six years. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's hard to pencil. I mean, what, what you're looking for is net proceeds. And so you have to understand that when you go to sell your property, you're going to take that into consideration and make sure that your net proceeds to investors is, you know, X amount and you're going to take the prepayment into consideration. So you just have to almost get that much higher of a price to make sure your, your prepayment is uh, taken care of. Right. So the, the next question here is, you know, does my credit matter as a personal consumer if I'm going to go after these commercial loans or, or bigger stuff? If you are going to sign on the loan, yes. So Fannie and Freddie, they, they typically want a credit score of 650 or higher. Um, and they're going to ask you about your previous, um, if you've had any previous foreclosures or previous bankruptcies, regardless of time frame. And they're going to want to hear the story if there is any of those. And, uh, but if you're an LP on a deal, then um, you're not going to be signing on the loan and your credit score does not matter at that point. Yeah, so for, for higher net worth guys, I'd say above 4 or $5 million and above, there's this opportunity called being a key principal, which is you know, you're in a general partnership, but you're just the rich guy signing on the debt to qualify for the loan. Um, and what's, what's your thoughts on as a, you know, as a limited partner who wants to get more involved just with big balance sheet? How does that work, James? I think it's, it's, so yeah. So let's say on, on a deal, um, let's say there's that $10 million deal and you're raising $4 million. A lot of times the general partner might get 10% or 20% of the equity for putting the deal together. And they might offer, uh, you know, let's say on that $6 million loan, you need $6 million in net worth and 600,000 in liquidity after the down payment. So that's the requirements for Fannie Mae. And not a lot of journal partners are able to sign on the loan by themselves. So they'll bring on a KP or key principal to meet those net worth and liquidity requirements. And they might offer that key principal 1% or 2% of the general partnership to, to uh, sign on the loan. And to me, I think you have to be comfortable number one with the operator to make sure that that person's going to do everything that they say that they're going to do because you are just as much on the hook as the key principal as that general partner. And so these non-recourse loans can become recourse if you um, commit any type of fraud or you um, do not follow the loan documents to a T. And so if the general partner decides, all right, hey, we had a fire, we got the insurance proceeds, but we're not going to use it on the property, we're just going to keep the money, and that can trigger a recourse um, Recourse, uh, it's called recourse carve-outs. And so that can, they're called bad boy carve-outs. And so what happens is if your general partner does that, then all of a sudden that $6 million loan becomes recourse. And so you as a KP have to understand the risk in signing on the deal because there is there is some risk. Yeah, and, and we just kind of wanted to talk about it. I don't really recommend it personally. It just seems like, I mean, we just want to mention it because it's a way, if you have a big balance sheet, it's a way of kind of juicing a little bit extra out of returns. But I think people who do it, they just are wide-eyed, bushy-tailed, and they just jump into bed with whoever. That's what I, I see. I think if if you are going to build sort of a long-term track record and you with that general partner, uh, signing as a KP is fine. And if you also are looking to, let's say, buy your own deal in the future, then, then it makes sense. But if, if you're just going to be an LP, 
then it typically does not make sense to sign as a KP because it, that 1% probably is not worth the risk. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think when I first got started a few years back, I was trying to get my KP cause I wanted to qualify for my Fannie Mae Freddie Mac deals myself. Then when I gave up on that idea, I didn't want to travel to Texas or Georgia myself all the time. Right. Um, I, I had, I got, actually got the KP. I got on a deal and got my KP, but I realized, well, I don't really want to be signing on, on my name on all these, even though they are non-recourse loans. I just didn't see the risk reward as very good for me. Yeah. If you're, if, if you're not going to, if it's not going to help you do your own deal. So some people will sign on it just to, you know, uh, you know, get in front of brokers and say, you know, I've signed on this deal. This is my deal and show that and sort of build their track record to some extent. And, uh, because they want to, they want to be a syndicator in the future. Yeah. I think if you're trying to do it to get that extra 1% of the deal, I think that's a bad risk reward for what you're getting. Yeah. For 1% for sure. Yeah. Um, so we talked about prepayment penalties and, um, you know, kind of getting out of the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, uh, world, um, there's other loans out there, right? FHA more for like newer builds, right? That's something I'm not really familiar about. Yeah. So, so FHA has two sort of bigger programs. One is a new construction program called 221D4. And there's another uh, program for refinances. And the, the issue that usually happens with both of these is that they take six to 12 months to do. And so most people are not doing them on acquisitions they are typically doing on refinances. And so the construction one is probably one of the best construction loans that you can get. It's a non-recourse loan and it goes for 40 years and it has a step down prepayment and it has a low interest rate. So everything about that sounds great. And the leverage is typically higher than like today in today's market, you're probably 60 to 65% on new construction, but this one can be up to 75, maybe 80% of the construction cost. Um, but it takes 12 months to do. And there are requirements like you, like within a three to four mile radius, there can't really be any new construction. So you're having to go out pretty far on the map. So um, you can see this map of Dallas behind me. Uh, you have to go sort of outside the colored areas and have to go pretty far out uh, to, to get a 221 D4 loan. So that's the, that's the first one, new construction. And those people are typically very qualified developers to get that loan. And the other one, um, is more on refinances. And so that one also takes six to 12 months. I've seen people do it who they, they buy like, let's say a newer property and they're essentially going to hold it for 15 to 20 years and it's for their own account and they just want to set the loan. So they'll usually buy the deal with a bridge loan. And then as soon as they close that bridge loan, they start working on the process um, for the refinance with FHA. And they can get like a 40-year term with a step-down prepayment, non-recourse, fixed rate. And um, just many people that I work with in sort of the syndication area, especially loans, I would say in that 15, 15 $20 million and under, they are not doing FHA loans. Yeah. Partly is just because it takes too long. Is that their deterrent? Or? Yeah, I mean, most syndicators want to be in and out in like two to three years. So the chance that they're going to sit there on a loan deal and do a loan application for nine to 12 months is pretty low. So most, most of the guys that I've seen it, like we look at a lot of properties and we look at you know what loan is on the property and very rarely do we run into that long of a loan. Um, and typically it's like, you know, a rich guy in California or, or Hawaii and they just sort of set it one time and they just let it run and they, they're going to pass that property on to their kids, something like yeah. that. And they're, they're going to need FHA experience, just like the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to get Yeah, yeah both, both of those require a significant amount of experience for them to give you that. Because, I mean, the whole time, I, I have not gone through the six to nine to 12 month process on one of those deals, but I'm assuming they're going to they're gonna ask for more stuff than even Fannie and Freddie. Right. Right. So even in that case where they're doing it more for legacy wealth on their own, not in a syndication, they're going to still need that key principle to sign on the debt with them. Right. Yeah. They typically have the net worth and liquidity on their own. Oh yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. They're yeah. already that rich guy. Yeah. yeah. 
So, so something you're seeing a lot in, in syndication deals is like these hybrid loans and adjusting rates. Yeah. So yeah, adjustable rate loans. I mean, right now is definitely, so Fannie and Freddie are typically just your fixed rate, you know, 10 year, five, seven, 10 year loans fixed at, let's say 5%. Um, what's happening on these bridge loans is they typically are a spread over 30 day LIBOR. So 30 day LIBOR, let's say is two and a half. And uh, the spread on most deals is, you know, 300 to 400 basis points, depending on the risk in the deal and the leverage. And so those are going to float every month. So every time, you know, the Fed raises rates or there's a, there's a, there's a change, um, it's going to reset. And so your interest rate today might be 575 um, at the beginning of the year, at the end of the year, it might be 625. And so a lot of people are, the, the disadvantage is your rate floats. But your, your main advantage is, let's say after 18 months or 24 months, you've repositioned that property and now you want to sell it. The prepayment is typically just 1%. And so it's, it's how much risk you're willing to take. Um, because obviously, if your prepayment's only 1% on a bridge loan compared to, you know, on a, even on a Freddie Mac, it might be 4%. Or on a Fannie Mae, it might be 10 or 15% uh, on your yield maintenance then you're making a lot more money as a syndicator um, after you sell on a bridge. Right. And, and I just, you know, cause I watched like a whole bunch of deal webinars and it's always kind of funny how this is always sold to limited partners. Sometimes things are said and makes completely no sense yet. It's said and nobody's there to rebut or something. <laughs> Someone yeah. was saying in the chat box, Oh, that's amazing. Wow. Yeah. I mean um, it's, it's you're definitely so i mean on a bridge loan that they they do try to protect the investor a little bit as well so they let's say it's a floating rate loan your initial interest rate is six percent let's just make it easy Um, they'll actually make you go out and buy interest rate cap so that your all-in interest rate can't go let's say above eight percent and so that might cost you you know fifty thousand dollars day one so the fifty thousand dollars plus you know, bridge loans are typically 50000 more than a Fannie or Freddie loan. And so you're already 100000 into it. And then your interest rate is higher. And so all these things like start adding up. So it doesn't really, you don't have a big prepayment penalty at the end, but uh, you're paying some of those costs up front. And so I, I would say, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely a lower prepayment penalty than yield maintenance. But you have a higher risk um, of losing some of your equity if there is a recession, because um, if that bridge loan can't be refinanced, then um, and you have to sell at a loss potentially, then then you are at risk. Where, let's say you put a ten-year loan on it today, there's a recession in 2020, 2021, then you have you know seven or eight years left after that to write it out and let the values come back and the rents come back. Right. Whereas if you had like a four or five year debt term, you'd right. likely be forced to refinance or sell in the trough of that recession. That's, that's right. More than so, likely. I mean, yeah. I'm, and, and it's kind of just to point this out. Um, you know, some people will look at, I, I used to look at, at deals and I'd be like, well, how long is the debt term? Cause I want that, like we said, longer, but you know, the longer you get that debt term, the bigger your prepayment penalty and you get killed with that in the future. So that's kind of one of those things where from a limited partner's perspective, it sounds nice, but you're just not sophisticated enough to see the whole picture. Um, Just like, you know, you you see a lot of these hybrid loans these days and with adjustable rates and you're like, Ooh, I don't like that adjusting thing. But like you said, the good things are that non-prepayment. So I don't know what's, what's the best. It's kind of just a holistic, you just got to feel, you just got to know. Um, yeah, I mean, I, w- I would say if, if a deal has significant upside where, you know, let's say here in Dallas, let's say you, you bought a deal and the rents are a dollar square foot and in reality market is a dollar 20. So you see a 20% lift on rents, um, you know, executing, you know, a million dollar rehab plan then on that deal, to me, a bridge loan makes sense because then you can go in in 18, 24 months, reposition the property, 
and probably either refinance or sell for a large gain. So that is a heavy sort of value add, you know, uh, you know, with a lot of upside. Whereas there's a lot of properties on the market where the rent's already a dollar twenty, and now you know you're trying to take it from a dollar twenty to a dollar twenty-five, and so there's really not that much lift on rents. And so to me, you just set those loans um, on a Fannie or Freddie, and you're really just collecting cash flow on the way. And you know there might be a little bit of appreciation, but you're really just trying to set the loan up so that uh, you're in a safe position and that you're collecting a check, you know, every month. Uh, on that, it's more Fannie Freddie fixed fixed rate debt makes a little bit more sense on that deal. Right, and then this is where like limited partners they go wrong because they look at things like, oh, how much debt is being taken out? What is the 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 rate floating? And like you said, they don't look at like, well, what are the rents? Are they undervalued? Is there ability to bump the rents? That's really where the security comes in. Yeah, I mean, as as before, I invest as a limited partner. I would definitely be looking at you know the rents and the upside and the story. And where where some general partners get into trouble is they show all of this upside on rents, which is great, but they pay all of the upside to the seller at close. And so the property property might, you know, really be worth $8 million, but they pay nine and a half today. And they talk about all the upside in the rents. But then, you know, after you do all the, all the stuff to get the rents there, it's worth, you know, 10 and a half. So you didn't really make a ton of money um, by raising the rents because you didn't buy it right. So you got to buy the deal, right? You got to finance it correctly. And then you got to, you got to exit correctly. And if you mess up in any one of those steps, then um, you, the general partner, aren't going to make any money and the limited partners aren't going to make any money as well. Yeah. So, so you're kind of in a unique position where you could see a lot of deals um, at the lender's table. Like what, what do you see that's separating a good deal from a bad deal? Cause I mean, I'm sure bad deals still get originated, right? Bad deals get originated. Um, but typically, uh, you know, as the lender, you're really looking at the snapshot in time and you're, you're positioning yourself as the lender to be protected in a downturn. And so Fannie and Freddie, uh, you know, if you, if you bring us a deal and we size it for Fannie and Freddie, they're going to, they're going to want a 125 debt service. And so there's going to be a 25% cushion on that debt service. And so unless rents drop that much, um, then they're going to, their principal is fine as a lender. But as an investor, I mean, you're trying to, trying to take your equity and essentially double it, let's say, in, in five years or six years. And so you have to understand, um, as an LP, let's say you're, you, you want to make sure that, number one, the operator can handle this property. And so whether it's understanding it's, if it's their market or if it's their property, um, how are they going to run it, I think is, is key. So um, there is more... The riskier the the loan is, the riskier the investment, the more important the operator is. And so like on Fannie and Freddie, they want, um, they put a lot of emphasis on the property and maybe 25% of the emphasis on the borrower. But then when you go to do a bridge loan, uh, they don't even really want to quote the deal unless, like they can look at the T12, they can look at the rent roll, but they want to know who the operator is. So on a bridge loan, it's almost 50-50, like operator to property. And so that's when, when I'm evaluating the deal as a lender, number one, you have to figure out, all right, am I doing a Fannie Freddie loan where it's pretty much stabilized or am I doing a bridge loan where there's a lot of operator risk? And then as an LP, as an investor, I'm looking first at the operator um, because an operator can take a really great property and turn it completely the other way around. So that's why number one is the operator. Second is probably the market because um, the market can overrun um, almost any good operator. So operator, market, and then finally the property and where it sits in the submarket and what the, what the business plan is to take that property over and how much rents can be bumped on that particular property. So is there anything that you see, um, you know, maybe it's not a, a great deal, but ways that they sharpen the pencil to make it work for the underwriters. Uh, are you talking about from the lender's perspective or the general from your, from your, more from your investor? Um, as an LP? Yeah. 
as a GP. Okay. Yeah. How did how did they how did they sharpshoot the Fannie Mae Freddie Mac program to this maybe this wasn't the best deal out there, but they they actually got the loan. How well, they, they can they can get the loan. Loan. I mean, you can if the property stabilized. You Fannie and Freddie. You know, if it's you know not in a in a horrible neighborhood and there hasn't been any big crime on the property, there hasn't been any big environment, no environmental issues, and it's stabilized. You can get a Fannie or Freddie loan on it. Um, the leverage piece is where it gets a little trickier. I mean, you definitely have to uh, know how to underwrite these deals and every line item. So from you know top line net rental to other income, all the way through your expenses, you have to underwrite the deal appropriately. And you have to know sort of what lenders, so the lenders are gonna underwrite these deals a little differently, even though Fannie Mae has sort of your guidelines out there. Um, there's some lenders who are just more aggressive than others, and they're gonna get a more aggressive appraisal, they're gonna get um, more aggressive on expenses, and they're gonna get you higher leverage. And so you have to know what lender would be the best fit for that particular property and sort of build a relationship with some of these lenders and you know if you do one deal with them let's say they do a tough deal for you then you know rewarding them by keep bringing loans back to the same um, lender and you'll get better terms than if you go you know shopping from lender to lender every transaction right so so you get to see a lot of deals and as a lender you guys aren't barred from investing them yourself right um, yeah, I mean, we're a mortgage broker, so we, we can invest in deals. Um, you know, majority of the deals that, that I've invested in is really number one, starting with the operator. And so whether I finance the deal or I don't finance the deal, um, if I like the operator, if it's a deal that's in my market, so there's, uh, in DFW, I'm in about 19 deals right now and they're, they're sort of spread out through the Metroplex. So, um, you know, I look at the operator first. And then if I like the market, I like the DFW market. And then um, I go drive the property and get an understanding of the business plan. So some of the big underwriting um, things I kind of look at are like the cap rate, uh, the version cap rates, what are they using there, the annual rent increases, and then what is the full occupancy they're putting down on their, their, um, their pitch deck? Right. What are some of the big indicators you kind of look at as when, you, when you're investing as an LP? I, I mean, um, other than operate, of course, because, you know, we're, we're just kind of assuming the guy listening on the podcast, you know, they may or may not have access to even meet people. Right. Okay. Sure. That's, that's, that's up to them. That's, yeah. that's a big piece of it, but just sitting at home. Right. So, yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of, a lot of deals, especially like on crowdfunding platforms where, um, I'll get the five-year projection and I mean, I almost, I, I usually sit back and underwrite the deal on my own and figure out, all right, how would I underwrite this deal and then compare it to how the operator's underwritten it. And some of the things that are, are off usually on deals is one thing to look for is expense ratio. And most deals run at an expense ratio of, I would say on a B deal, 50%. On a C deal, it might be 55 On an A deal, it might be 45 So that's expenses to total revenue. And sometimes you'll look at deals, and that's a quick you know, telltale sign of an operator who doesn't know what's going on is if they have like a 25% expense ratio um, on multifamily. This is multifamily. Um, because, I mean, on all the deals that I've invested in, across a b and c nobody is really below like 45 percent on their expense ratio so that's one of the first things like so that you like that better than like um let's use 3500 or 4500 per unit per year of expenses yeah that's it's there's too much there's too much of a difference i mean um the the expense ratio is just like a a rule of thumb that, that I use, especially because if you haven't dug into every expense, like you haven't looked up real estate taxes, you don't know what they're going to use for insurance. Um, you don't know what utilities are. There's so much uh, variance in that. But if I, if someone sends me like a, a class B deal and they're like, I'm going to run this thing at 40% expense ratio, it's just not going to happen. Um, you know, the appraiser is not going to buy off on that number. No one's going to buy off on that number. And so either, their revenue projections are way off or their expenses are just, they're cutting it to the bone and that property is not going to look like a great property in two or three years if your expense ratio is that low. And so 
Um, expense ratio, I would start, start there. And then I usually look at what's the gap between my in-place rents versus where they think they can take rents. And, um, you know, how much, like if you're a B deal in, let's say a DFW suburb and you're trying to go from that dollar square foot to dollar 20, that's probably reasonable. But if you're a B deal, all of a sudden you're trying to go from a dollar 25 up to a dollar 50 and the, you know, the new product is getting a dollar 50 then that where that's where it gives me a little hesitation is how much of a gap between the nice stuff do I have between, um, my B deal and your A deal. And so I want to see the, the increase in rents and then also that you're, you're forecasting expenses reasonably. And then I look at the residual cap is important, but I also look at the price per door that I have to sell at. And so if you have a residual cap on your deal of, let's say, um, 7% on a, on a B deal and, um, you have to sell it for 120 a door five years from now, then I can probably get comfortable because there's probably B deals that are trading for that number now. But if you have to sell for, let's say 150, 160 a door on a B deal in a B area, that's a little bit harder to, to stomach. Um, unless there is, you know, it's all townhomes and it's 1500 square foot units or something like that. But a normal B deal, I'm going to look at the the price per door on the residual. Okay. I mean, going back to the, the other thing you were mentioning, the, um, the, the rent increases, I, right. I kind of have this rule of thumb where I don't like to see anything more than like 10 to 15% rent increases right off okay. the bat. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. So from, I mean, it's going to take a while to, to sort of get it from year one to year two, but I just want to see the story on my in-place rents to what the market is currently. And if you can justify that story and show me comps that are already getting that number, then it makes me feel a lot more comfortable. And, and right now, because I have investments across the Metroplex, regardless of submarket, you, you can probably send me a deal and I can pull up a property within, you know, five, 10 minutes of that property and tell you sort of what rents are in that submarket. And so I want to, I want to see sort of proof that you're, you're, you're going to be able to get those rents in that market. All right. Cool. So I wanted to kind of end the, the interview with some kind of a doom and gloom thing here. <laughs> um, All right. This debt, debt covenant thing. Um, you okay. want to kind of explain that? Debt covenant? Yeah, the, the whole, like, the thing where if there's a recession in the future okay. and the lenders, they can, if the value goes down, something there has to be like in the contract, they have to be covered by a certain ratio of the value that sure. they can sort of call the loan due, even if the, even if the property is cash flowing and doing well. So on Fannie and Freddie, they don't have that. So they can't, so on, um, like when I was at GE, when we did bridge loans, they would put something in there where, you know, the first three years, it would be, you know, we're going to give you a 75% loan. But then in year four, we're going to do a covenant test. And the test was, you know, it needs to be at a 125 debt service, and it needs to be 75% loan to value. And if they, they did an appraisal, and it was not that you would have to pay down the loan. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. So, okay. so kind of the, the question is like, is that a big thing? Is it really going to happen? And, and I think so. So, in on bridge loans, there the reason that their cost is so much higher is that their legal bill is typically twenty five to thirty thousand dollars on a bridge loan, and it is because they have loan agreements that are you know a hundred pages, and they're all negotiable. And so you can negotiate on a bridge loan all the, all the finer deal points. Whereas Fannie and Freddie, they essentially send you the loan agreement and say sign page you know, 110. Uh, you can't change anything and it costs you $10,000 for legal. Uh, and and in, their, in their documents, there are not covenants that say, you know, in year five, we're gonna, we're gonna do an appraisal and if your value dropped, then you got to pay us down, you know, to 75%. There, there is no covenants in the docs. If you, if you, if you are paying your debt service, then um, whether the property is paying it or you particularly are paying it out of your pocket as the general partner, 
then they cannot foreclose on you. Good to know. Good to know. So if you have a bridge loan right, and you're in a deal like that, um, I mean, that's kind of messed up, right? I mean, you're making all your debt payments and just, they just want to be a little predator on you and come after. Is it, have you ever heard of any cases? Cause I think like, didn't Kiyosaki say like this happened to him? That's kind of where this comes from. I think, I think sometimes, I mean, I mean, Dave Ramsey says the same thing, right? But it really comes down to what is the term. So at GE, they typically gave you a choice. You could take a two-year term, you take a three-year term, four-year term, five-year term. On your initial term, there was not really covenants within that. But then let's say you came back for an extension. So let's say you got a three-year loan and you wanted two one-year extensions. Before we gave you an extension for another year, you had to meet those covenants. And so some people take the shorter-term loan because the interest rate is lower and the prepayment is lower. So they just want to get out. They think they're going to be out in three years, no problem. But then if a recession hits, then that's where it comes into. And they're going, typically they're going back to the lender asking for an extension. And when you go back for that extension, they say, well, uh, you need to, we want to be at 75% loan to value. And if you can't hit that, then 75% loan to value and 125 debt service, if you can't hit that, then you need to pay down the loan or we're not going to extend. And so a lot of times we hear stories, but we don't get the full story. We get the, you know, they called my note. Well, a lot of times it was the, the, the loan matured. And, you know, it was only a 30 day loan. Like I think Dave Ramsey, most of his loans were like 30 or 60 day loans and then they called them. But I mean, they were, they were revolving, they were revolving loans, you know, short term. And I I don't know for Kiyosaki exactly what um, his loan term was, but a lot of times what happens is, is the short initial term and then to get the extension then, or a new loan, they're having to pay it down. Yeah. that's yeah. where it gets a little bit. Um, that's where people can get in trouble. A lot of it's probably like, well, well, then just invest with me, right? <laughs> that's, right. That's yeah. the marketing angle. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It doesn't seem too concerning anymore. So you made me feel a little bit better. Sounds like it's the whole do on sale clause for the old residential loans. It's not not that big of a deal. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, um, yeah. I think if you if you stick with sort of your your Fannie and Freddie loans. Um, then, then it's when you go off, um, uh, and do like a new bridge line or something that nobody is familiar with, then you run into trouble there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what are you, what are you doing personally these days? You, I mean, you did a lot of like the, the stabilized deals. Are you kind of playing outside a little bit, trying to go for a little more higher risk, higher reward or in terms of lending or investing, investing, which investing I mean, out of, on? Out of the, so I'm in 21 deals right now. Um, 19 of those just pay, you know, cash flow monthly. Two of them are more of your heavy value add. And so those are going to be, you know, first 18 months, no cash flow. And then we're going to look to refinance in, you know, month 18 to 24. And um, on those, on those bridge loans, you just have to really trust the operator and really believe the story because you're sitting there not getting any money for a while. Whereas the other ones, the other 19 deals, I mean, I'm fine holding those forever. Yeah. Um, you know, those are all, all paying anywhere, you know, most cash on cash right now in today's market, you know, it might start out at five or 6% and then get up to, there's some that are at 10% just for some of the deals that I invested in sort of 2014, 2015 in that, in that time frame. Yeah. So did you kind of go in that thinking that, well, 10% or so of my portfolio is going to be this get after it, um, more heavy value add, or does it just happen to be that way? Um, yeah, I think, I think once you have a good amount of cash flow coming in monthly, then you can take a little bit more risk with the portfolio. My initial, my initial uh, LP investments, I wanted that monthly cash flow component for sure. And then once, once you've built that up enough, then I think you can put a little bit of capital more at risk um, on, on the heavier value add stuff. And yeah, I mean, I, I still prefer just the monthly cash flow over the heavy value add because, you know, I invest, you know, I invest a hundred thousand into a deal and I just, 
it, it takes a while to, to see the money come back. Yeah. So what's your thoughts on where we're heading in 2019-2021? I mean, I think I, I'm still going to be investing in deals, um, especially in Texas, in, in the markets that I know. I mean, I was, I was born and raised in Houston, went to school in Austin, and I've been in Dallas for 12 years now. So in those markets that I know, sort of the, the right side of the tracks, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to still be investing because I think, especially in, in the BNC stuff that we're investing in, I just don't, I just don't see, I mean, it's definitely getting expensive, but uh, the demand is there and uh, I don't know where else to put money to get, you know, six, 7% cash on cash, um, tax advantaged, um, essentially tax-free until you sell. And, uh, you know, the depreciation changes this past year made a big difference, I think, for a lot of people. And so if you're able to offset, you know, other income that you receive with, you know, your LP income, then I think it's, it's one of the best ways to invest. All right. Well, yeah, James thinks so a lot. I mean, um, hopefully people got a lot of value out, even if they're an LP. Um, do you want to get your contact information People want to get a hold of you guys to originate a Fannie Mae Freddie Mac loan or, you know, sure. you yeah, so, right. Yeah. So we do, we do Fannie and Freddie nationwide and then also bridge loans um, nationwide. So yeah, you can reach out to me. Um, the easiest is probably my email. It's uh, J E N G at oldcapitallending.com or just Google me. I'm, I've tried to, do a pretty good job at, you know, LinkedIn and social media type of stuff. So you should be able to find me. Uh, Just Google my name and uh, you should be able to reach out. All right, guys. Um, Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time. All right. Thanks, Lane.